How are young black girls policed through school level policies? And how can schools provide the tools so black girls can carve out their identity in a world that insists they become something else? You'll get the answers to this and more on the new Shades of Freedom podcast from the Aspen Institute Criminal Justice Reform Initiative. The podcast is hosted by the initiative's director, Dr. Douglas E. Wood. In this inaugural episode, he spoke with Dr. Monique Morris, founder of National Black Women's Justice Institute, the executive director of Grantmakers for Girls of Color, and the author of several books, including Push Out, which PBS recently adapted into a documentary of the same name. We're sharing this episode as a preview and encourage you to go subscribe to Shades of Freedom on your favorite podcast app. You can also find more details about the show and the program in our episode notes. So much of how we've come to understand Black girlhood has been through contrived narratives that are not really constructed by them. Welcome to the first episode of Shades of Freedom, a new podcast from the Aspen Institute's Criminal Justice Reform Initiative. My name is Douglas Wood, Executive Director of the Program and Initiative, and I will be the host of this new podcast. The name of the podcast is inspired by the book of the same title, Shades of Freedom, Racial Politics and Presumptions of the American Legal Process by one of my former professors, the great and amazing Judge A. Leon Higginbotham Jr. Our new Aspen initiative will amplify and uplift promising policy and systems changes needed to reduce mass incarceration, as well as think about the ecosystem of related inequalities that surround and perpetuate it. We all know that in the United States, our justice system is at a crisis point. Over 2 million people are imprisoned in the U.S. and over 7 million are currently under some form of correctional control. With 25% of the world's prison population, one out of the five people in the United States have a criminal record. We can change this reality, but it will take engaging in dozens of issues simultaneously. One critical yet important piece of dismantling and transforming the justice system starts in our schools which have been turned into an on-ramp for some students to the juvenile and criminal justice systems. Joining me today to discuss the topic of the criminalization of black girls is Dr. Monique Morris. Dr. Morris's prolific career as a social justice advocate spans over decades. She's an award-winning writer, social justice scholar, professor, founder of the National Black Women's Justice Institute, and the new executive director of Grant Makers for Girls of Color. She is also the author of several books, including Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, which PBS recently adapted into a documentary. Push Out chronicles the adultification and criminalization of black girls in schools and the justice system. In our discussion today, we will explore Push Out's content and the profound injustices black girls face in our country every day. Monique Mars, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Happy to be here. We were so very pleased that you were part of our very first digital event focused on your book and the documentary film, and pleased to have you here as our very first guest. Thank you. First isn't bad. (laughs) First is great. For some of our listeners who might not have read the book Push Out or seen the film, you have said that your entry point for Push Out came after you had the opportunity to examine what's happened in schools over the last 20 years. How did that investigation become your inspiration for this book and later the film? I had been going in and out of juvenile detention facilities for decades. 
um, before I put pen to paper um, to begin to write, push out the criminalization of black girls in schools. But really, when we saw the data that showed the disparities that uh, were revealing a particular lived experience for black girls, um, that's when I felt like we had to do something. We had to begin to talk about this uh, phenomenon differently. We had to search intentionally for Black girls in the conversation about what we were calling the school to prison pipeline, what I call school to confinement pathways, because without the intentional way that we engage with our our questions around what this system and process does, then uh, we facilitate an erasure of those experiences as they, you know, sort of manifest in the lives of uh, black girls. So the data revealed that black girls were the only group of girls who were disproportionately experiencing exclusionary discipline across the spectrum of discipline and at every educational level. You know, certainly when you see the data, you, you start to say, well, why is this happening? And sometimes people revert to their own, you know, sort of preconceived notions about why this might be occurring. But really, you know, we we did a deeper dive and found that what we were expecting to see around, uh, you know, this being mostly about fights or mostly about um, other forms of disruption were really fundamentally about a host of other conditions that we had not yet fully explored. Issues like trauma and victimization, issues like sexual violence and victimization, issues like uh, adultification and uh, the reading of black girl behaviors in ways that are deeply problematic and aligned with, you know, historical um, and outdated ideas about black uh, girlhood. So once we began to unpack it, it revealed this entire world that we needed to engage in um, and with intention in order for us to begin to correct. Uh, you mentioned the word adultification of black girls. Can you say more about what that means? And can you put it into context of a particular Georgetown study titled The Sexual Abuse of Prison Pipeline, The Girl Story. Adultification is a concept that's been deeply explored by Dr. Jamelia Blake and uh, her colleagues, uh, Rebecca Epstein, at the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality. And the study talked about the ways in which adults read the behaviors of girls as more adult-like. And what they found was that Black girls are experiencing a belief that they are in need of less nurturing, less protection, that they are more knowledgeable of adult topics like sex and more independent than their white counterparts. And that this disparity happens when girls are as young as age five and it peaks when they're between the ages of 10 and 14. It's really, um, I think, important to recognize that much of how we're reading the adult uh, adult-like behaviors or the perceived adult-like behaviors of Black girls is happening at a time in their lives when they are most vulnerable to sexual victimization and other forms of violence. Um, one of the things that we uh, share in the Push Out documentary is that Black girls are experiencing early onset puberty. And so when their bodies are changing at a younger age, adults tend to start engaging with them as if they are older, even if they're not cognitively uh, more mature. And so using body as proxy for, uh, you know, this, this understanding of who they are and what they're capable of is deeply problematic in the school setting where we're supposed to be adjusting to them as scholars in accordance to their cognitive and, you know, behavioral uh, levels of maturity. Um, the reading of them as more adult-like then shifts our understanding of how to read trauma if a girl is experiencing sexual violence. 
It also feeds into whether we're going to have uh, more patience or less patience with them um, if they do make a mistake and determine their mistake as just that, a mistake and not an irreparable harm that requires us to remove them completely from the learning environment or community. I think it's been a, a significant contribution um, this work around adultification to our conversations about how we can interrupt cycles of violence in the lives of Black girls and how we need to educate others about uh, the potential danger of reading you know, Black girls' behaviors, bodies, et cetera, as more adult-like than they are. And Push Out, you, you, know, you talked about stereotypes, language, uh, and labels, and how, especially during the internet era, um, it can be detrimental to Black girls in forming their identities. How do we shift the sometimes negative deficit-based narratives and biases regarding Black girls? You know, so much of how we've come to understand Black girlhood has been through contrived narratives that are not really constructed by them. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people aren't talking to Black girls about what it is to be a Black girl. Mm. Um, and so for me, you know, that's one of the reasons why it was deeply important for me to engage a participatory process when doing the research for Push Out was to just go into facilities, go into schools, talk to the girls and just explore what their lived experiences actually are. So I think in order for us to really begin to disrupt some of those narratives that are rooted in racially biased gender stereotypes about Black girls, is for us to actually talk to them and explore what it is that they're experiencing and then you know, create platforms that provide ample opportunity for them to correct course. Mm -hmm. Probably one of the most valuable things I feel from having produced push out um, in book and film form has been the opportunity for girls to speak their truths in a way that people seem to be receiving, that they're able to articulate both what they have experienced positively in their learning spaces and what they wish were different so that they could actually have a, a, a safe learning space that is you know, both conducive to their intellectual development and also their emotional development. Um, you know, we know already that if young people don't feel safe enough in schools, they're not going to feel like they can learn, right? They're gonna be busy and distracted. Their brain, we're wired this way for our brains to be busy protecting us if we don't feel safe. And so part of this element of discussing push out and trying to um, unpack what it is that Black girls are experiencing is to understand more deeply what it is that we need to put in place for them to feel safe. You know, that's so interesting because we talked about that during the digital event uh, and what we would suggest educators do around creating healing-centered approaches mm -hmm. to learning. Uh, so in the context particularly of COVID, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about creating a healing-centered approach to learning for Black girls? So I think, you know, COVID has certainly, COVID-19 has complicated everyone's life. Um, and yet we're all, you know, grateful to have life also in this mm -hmm. moment. Um, it, I think it's also important to uplift that one of the gifts that we got from this moment of pause was the opportunity for us to explore all the ways in which we were sort of masking and in some ways masquerading an equity mm -hmm. that uh, we can no longer pretend um, is what we thought it was. 
you know, so many of our girls in this COVID-19 environment have been struggling to uh, maintain their identities as scholars, to build meaningful relationships and connect with their educators and peers and classmates. And yet young people are more digitally savvy mm -hmm. than older mm -hmm. people, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the challenges are not necessarily their ability. It's about all the other things that we need to make sure are in place to, in, to ensure their safety. Um, I'm really excited by the fact that, you know, through grant makers for girls of color, we've been able to support almost um, 85 organizations who are being very creative in this moment, who are connecting girls with the types of materials they need to be responsive to their learning needs, that are able to build community in ways that uh, continue to uplift their emotional, intellectual, and spiritual safety. Um, and that for girls of color, what we seek to do is build out, again, the modalities that connect them in community as opposed to really trying to exploit, um, you know, whatever dangerous conditions there might be in their lives. Now, the problem is that not everyone sees um, this environment as a particular type of disruption that can be harmful. We had the case of Grace, you know, I'm not handling her case specifically, but mm -hmm. I will say, you know, having watched it from afar, the 15-year-old girl who was placed in detention for not completing her homework mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in Michigan, yes. that... Um, you know, we also have cases like that. And unfortunately, she's not the only one where there are, you know, black girls who continue to be criminalized for normal adolescent behavior or behavior that is consistent with their responses to severe disruption and trauma mm -hmm. that we seek to respond to with, you know, a violent structure, <laughs> as opposed to really thinking about how we can um, interrupt this cycle with another type of intervention. I really think this moment presents an opportunity for us to explore what it is to not rely on some of these systems that exacerbate harm, but to really consider what it is to make a deeper investment in the alternatives to some of these structures that can exist virtually, that have been existing virtually, and that um, I think will be utilized, um, I, I hope will be utilized more effectively in the future. You know, we all heard about that case in Michigan, and it brings me back to a question I wanted to ask you. Um, can you speak to conditions of confinement for Black girls in particular? As we know that every year, an estimated 300,000 young people are sent to detention centers, and 20,000 are held in detention centers on any given night. And can you speak to that in particular with respect to COVID? Um, in general, what we know about, you know, the carceral facilities, the detention facilities, and I say this in push out, is that they're not healing responsive, mm -hmm. that they are, they can't be. Um, the system and structure that they're embedded in is one that is about suppression and oftentimes verbal abuse and violence um, in response to other forms of violence that these young people are already experiencing and therefore cannot be a healing uh, space. Um, you know, I, and I try to operate with the understanding that, you know, there are basically two ways that we can move both in policy and practice, and that's either through fear or through love. Uh, carceral facilities are instruments and structures of fear, mm -hmm. not love. They are fear. Yes. Um, and so if we, we unfortunately, we've prioritized, um, you know, sort of resourcing these structures of fear. Mm -hmm. Um, without a deep investment in the structures of love. 
without a deep mm-hmm. investment in the counseling, the um, opportunities for us to explore education as a critical protective factor beyond just saying those you know who want to be here will get to be here, but understanding how we create systems and spaces where everyone wants to be there. Um, we think about you know, these facilities as being necessary in our community, except that, you know, so many of us who have spent time with young people in these facilities or who have lived experiences with these facilities understand that if we were to invest in some of the alternatives to the carceral facilities, that we would see a, uh, you know, a, a, a type of transformation that isn't possible when one is behind bars and isolated from their community. Um, in the TED Talk that I gave on, on this topic, I talked about the way that we use exclusionary discipline to push people away um, mm-hmm. rather than think about you know, harm as an opportunity to bring people in closer. And it's actually harder to bring people in closer than it is to push them away, mm-hmm. right? Yes. It's actually harder to sit and have a conversation with someone about how they engage in the deep transformation and that you know the isolation is what you know drives someone to the brink of insanity that it's the isolation from community that exacerbates the harm and deepens the sore and so if we're really seeking to disrupt the soreness then you know we really have to do this hard work now so um, I, I appreciate this moment. I, I go through all of that to say that I'm appreciative of this moment that we're in because I think it's an opportunity for us to engage in a deep reconciliation if we don't waste this moment, right? That, that mm-hmm. we have this mm-hmm. opportunity for us to say, we want to do things differently. Those of us who have been asking for something different for the past 20 plus, 30 plus, 60 plus years are saying, you know, we've been still we've been you know aware of these conditions for a very long time but now we're in a moment where we're evaluating how we want to do certain things how we're going to move into the future so i offer or i invite us to really think about what it might look like if we engage our radical imagination around love and think about developing structures policies practices conditions that are rooted in that rather than fear Mm-hmm. You know, you actually referred to this before around this notion of transformation. Mm-hmm. Many criminal justice advocates have called upon not just, quote unquote, reforming the system, but to think about real and true transformation that gets to the core of overlapping inequalities that go beyond tinkering at the edges. What are your thoughts about that? The transformative work is really about how we want to to shape the future. It's scary, I think, for a lot of people to think about tearing something down to rebuild it. If we move beyond the reflex of us wanting to market our interest in some of these uh, you know, conversations about justice and freedom, uh, you know, then we'll actually get to a place where we recognize that tinkering with the edges does not produce the type of, of healing that is necessary from the generations of people who have been deeply impacted by a structure and society that was based upon the subjugation and dehumanization of another group of people or other groups of people. Um, And we have to reconcile that. We have to reconcile that in all the systems. We have to reconcile it with the creation of the police force. We have to reconcile that with the 
structures uh, that we have in place around the penal system. More generally, we have to think about that in the context of how schools were created and how they function today. That if we just pretend like this history doesn't matter, that it is one of those things that I think deepens the harm, because even if we're not paying attention to it, it's still there. And as we reimagine policing in America, many have advocated for rethinking the use and even getting rid of school resource officers. I can't leave this conversation at all without asking your thoughts about that. Yeah, in Sing a Rhythm, Dance of Blues, uh, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls, I wrote that uh, safety in schools does not require a police escort and that we have to think about how we build safety in a way that is co-constructed with the young people mm-hmm. um, who are living in those spaces and not think about safety as something that can be implemented or brought in. You can't bring in safety. You can bring in instruments of surveillance. <laughs> you can bring in um, agents of, of enforcement, but you cannot bring in safety. Mm-hmm. You pull out safety, right? You, mm-hmm. you cultivate safety. And so um, I agree that schools should be places where there are no police officers, where there are instead other structures to engage in conversations about accountability and where young people are are connected to the adults and peers in their learning space in a way that is as old as it is now new. So, you know, schools didn't always have police officers, right? right. right. Um, and a lot of times it, it's always frustrating for me as someone who spent time in classroom, you know, as an educator, we pretend like these kids are somehow different than the way we were or mm-hmm. the kids back in the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just have to fundamentally disagree with that, that mm-hmm. kids are kids. What's shifted is a lot of our narrative about their promise, um, our expectations for how they engage in conversation with us and build community with us, and our own understanding of what the school system can and should be. So uh, for our listeners and future listeners, I'm going to ask uh, Monique a question. I will ask all of our guests at the end of this podcast, and that is this. This podcast is titled Shades of Freedom. When you hear that phrase, what does it mean to you now and for the future? So shades of freedom for me, I see a gradient. So I'm, I'm a visual learner. <laughs> and so I think mm-hmm. in terms of a, a gradient, not to say that, you know, there's sort of a continuum of freedom, um, though I think there's a continuum of access to freedom. Mm-hmm. But I think that for me, the notion of having a shades uh, of freedom um, as, a, as a framework is really about a deepening of our own interrogation of how we understand freedom to manifest in the different lives and experiences of the people that we come into communication with and who we come into community with around the world. Um, There's a recognition to me that's embedded in this that freedom doesn't look the same to all people, but that freedom is something that is on all of our minds, this capacity to move without inhibition or this this opportunity to participate fully 
in oneself, um, one's expressions, one's institutions, um, and fundamentally to recognize that freedom is accessible to everyone and not a pie that we should see as something to be divvied. Thank you so very much, Monique Morris. You are so special. We had so many people so happy and thrilled uh, that you participated in our first digital event, and now you have participated in our first podcast. So thank you so, so much. It was a pleasure having you on today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for hosting this conversation. It's a necessary one, and I'm so happy that we are engaging in conversations about shift in thinking in a way that is reflective of our full community and that will also engage and bring in conversations about our girls. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's Aspen Insight. We previewed the new Shades of Freedom podcast from the Institute's Criminal Justice Reform Initiative. Find out more about the show in our program notes and go subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app.